Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Here in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, some of the key points that we walked away with last week. Verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. That was the instruction that God had given to Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless. We found out that that standard that God has for Abraham is no less for us, that uh, we have the same standard expected of us, that we're to walk before God and be blameless. Another takeaway point that we had was in verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your Zerah, your descendants or your offspring or your seed after you. And we found out that that includes those who are in Christ when you're in the family of faith. And the key passage, I guess, that I could refer us to regarding that would be Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So the way has been made open for those of us to have access that aren't Jewish, that we can come in and have a relationship with God despite our race. And then another key point was in verse 7, for an everlasting covenant, that the covenant was everlasting or eternal. And then finally in verse 8, also I give to you and to your Zerah after you the land as an everlasting possession. And that God has already weighed in on the modern discussion as to who the land belongs to. I mean, he's the maker of the land. He can decide who gets it, right? I mean, he has that right to say, I'm going to give this to these people. And uh, so in the modern discussion, they don't often consult God. They want to leave God out of the equation. But like I said last week, to their peril would they do so. So Genesis chapter 17, then beginning now and picking up where we left off, we're at verse 9. And we might actually do nine through the rest of the chapter. We'll just have to wait and see. That's a big chunk. We don't normally do that much. Jennifer's like, whoa, hold on. We're going to be going fast. So I'm trying to start off slow. I'm trying to pace myself. All right, so that I don't get going too fast too soon. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 9. Somebody want to read 9 and 10. Somebody want to read those. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Thank you, Ron. We're going to be talking about circumcision today. So circumcision is not a topic I would normally recommend you talk about at lunch. Uh, but that's hey, we work with what we got, right? So we're going to talk about circumcision a little bit. We'll have some color photos at the end of the study. Um, basically, what we're looking at right now, if you don't know what circumcision look, Dave's giving me that look like, oh, dear. <laughs> he should have cleared this with me before. <laughs> if you don't know what circumcision is, I'm going to try to be very careful here in how I describe this. It's basically a surgical procedure that's the longest standing sur- surgical procedure that's ever been performed in the sense that circumcision is a is a, an optional surgical procedure that has been performed longer than any other surgical procedure known to man all right it's it's it goes that far back in time 
it's uh, about 40% of the males in the, in the world are circumcised. Um, circumcision is performed heavily or regularly, I'd say, in the United States of America. You also have it among Jews. You have it also performed routinely and regularly among Muslims. You find it also in, in Korea, but you don't find it very often in Europe, apparently, from what I've been reading. You don't find it very often in uh, Central America, South America, or Canada, just to name a few as well. So about 40% of the world's population, male population, being involved in circumcision. The procedure itself is basically, it's a protective hood of skin that's not essential on a male reproductive organ that gets cut off. And that's actually what circumcision means. Circum for around and incision, like incision cut. So it's something that's cut around and off. So it's this non-essential piece of flesh that gets cut off. Moving from there, we have God's instruction then is just for every male child among you shall be circumcised. This is not to say that the women are inferior. All right. The, if you look at the whole teaching in the Bible, you find that women are elevated. In, in God's sight, women are elevated more so than was actually practiced. But, I mean, what, what we're talking about here is God is looking at the male to be a representative of a social unit. All right. So it's basically it's to indicate a people. All right. It's to indicate a people. And we'll see more of that as the verses go on. Somebody mind reading 1711. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Excellent. Thank you. So the verse that Dave just read here, verse 11, we find that circumcision is not the covenant. Notice that? Circumcision is not the covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. So the covenant is the promise of God that God has given regarding children, that God has given regarding land. But the sign of the covenant is circumcision. Okay? Regarding this circumcision, you find that Jesus himself is actually circumcised. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 21, it talks about the circumcision of Jesus. And in going there, somebody mind reading Luke 2.21. Luke 2.21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So we find from this verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 21, that Jesus himself was circumcised. And what day was it that he was circumcised? The eighth day, right. So go back to Genesis chapter 17. And let's read verse 12. Somebody mind reading verse 12. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, a servant who was born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. So we see that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. And the reason for the eighth day is it goes back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 12. That was the day God said, this is the day you're going to do it. You're going to do it on the eighth day. And you might be thinking, that's kind of strange. Why would God pick the eighth day? What's significant about the eighth day? Uh, looking at the eighth day, a lot of times the eighth day might conjure up ideas of atonement or dedication to the Lord. And perhaps that's part of the reason why God is specifying that that day be the one that they chose. But it's interesting, in the last hundred years, I mean, if you're talking, you're looking back at Genesis chapter 17, we're talking 4,000 years ago. In the last hundred years, they've actually discovered that the eighth day is actually the optimal day to have a child circumcised, a male child circumcised. And it turns out because our bodies need vitamin K for the blood to coagulate. And vitamin K, when it processes through the liver, apparently it gives rise to this prothombian. I don't even know if I'm saying it that right. But basically vitamin K and this prothombian come together and they provide the ability for blood to coagulate. All right. So if you're looking at the vitamin K issue, it doesn't even start to happen until days five, six, or seven, depending on the child. So by the eighth day, you're at an optimum level of vitamin K. And then the prothombium needs to be over 100% of what our bodies are going to eventually have. And what happens is the prothombium ends up being above 100% on day eight. 
and then it drops back down. So it turns out that day eight, medically speaking, turns out to be a really good choice if you have to choose from among any day to uh, see that your child gets circumcised. (laughs) It seems like God knew what he was talking about well in advance of medical science, all right, Uh, which is always the case. So it turns out to be a situation where, wow, this is really amazing. I mean, that you look at it, if you could choose any day, medical science would now say day eight is the best choice. Oh, and by the way, that's what God thought all along. That was God's instructions all along. I think it's kind of neat when you come across things like that. How about verses 13 and 14? Somebody mind reading those? A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised, but shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. If you notice from these verses that Levette just read, verses 13 and 14, and along with the verse that we read earlier, which is in verse 12, you find that circumcision is not instructed for just Abraham. It's not instructed for just Abraham and his male son. It's instructed for the whole community. If you notice that, and it even extends so far as to include servants, and it talks about people that are you know, bought from foreigners or, or that are foreign themselves. So this is a sign that's intended to be community-wide, a people group-wide, okay? So it's not just for the little tiny group of Abraham and his blood relatives that are born after him. You also see this phrase in verse 14, that person shall be cut off from his people. That's the punishment that's dictated by God for those that do not get circumcised. All right, What does that phrase mean? At a minimum, you're looking at possibly excommunication, and at a maximum, they're talking possible death penalty. It's not clear from the language what exactly is required of that, but it sounds bad. All right? So one way or the other, the best case scenario is you got, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of this group. And worst case scenario is, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of this group and you're going to die. All right. So, I mean, there is that range in there. So either way, it sounds like God is wanting them to take this pretty seriously. All right. It sounds like God wants them to follow through on this. Another interesting thing about that phrase, that person shall be cut off. It's a play on words. It's a play on words in that either the person agrees to get cut or the person gets cut. All right. (laughs) You either voluntarily get cut for to be in the community or you get cut from the community all right it's, it's kind of the way it's going to work out here and then verse 15 somebody might reading that one and god said to abraham as for sarah your wife you shall not call her name sarah but sarah shall be her name excellent thank you steve so here we have the changing of the name of sarah we saw last week abraham got his name changed from abram and here we see sarah gets her name changed from sarah We were able to see last week the nuance and the meanings of the name Abram to Abraham. In Sarah, it's a little more obscure. They're not really sure what the meaning was before. So there is a little bit of a change, but it seems to have been lost somewhat as to what the change was from and to. She ends up being elevated in a sense because she's finally being brought back into the narrative in a sense. Verse 16, somebody might reading the very next verse. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here we find that Sarah, who's been barren all along, which is a stigma in that, in that society, to be barren. for. I mean, she's 89 now. Um, she's about to turn 90. She'll be 90 within the year. Mm-hmm. And so at that age, you know, it's kind of a little late to have children. At least that would be the thought back then, and it would be the thought now, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but and you look at the situation, and you find that God hasn't forgotten about her. All right, The promise that was given so many years before, God is reminding them that not only has he not forgotten about the promise, but it's within a year of coming true. All right, Verse 17, somebody mind reading that? 
Abraham fell face down, he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Excellent. Thank you, Dave. Why is Abraham saying a hundred years old? We just found out from verse 1 that he was only 99. Why is he saying he's 100 here? Yeah, it's going to take nine months, right? <laughs> so he's he's probably thinking, I just saw Sarah. She doesn't have a, a you know a little bump on her belly right now. So if this is going to happen, I'm going to probably be 100 by this happens. She's going to be 90 years old by the time this happens. And uh, so what's his response when he hears that? Yeah, he's laughing. I mean, yeah, you got to admit, it sounds kind of funny, right? If you're still getting to know who God is, you, you find out that God's got a sense of humor, all right? And in this situation, Abram, Abraham now, is finding out continually more and more about who this God is that he's following. And he can't help but laugh when he hears that his wife, who's been barren, and she's you know going to be turning 90 years old by the time that she's going to give birth to a child. I mean, that's just, that's funny, if nothing else, all right? So he ends up laughing at that. We find out later on that Sarah's going to end up laughing. When we get to chapter 18, the next chapter, you're going to find out she laughs when she hears this news. All right, so the news that ends up creating laughter in Abraham, it ends up creating laughter in Sarah. And the interesting thing or the fun part about it is in verse 19 when we get there regarding the name of the child. But we have to hit verse 18 first. So what does verse 18 say? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that is Ismael might live before the Excellent. Thank you. So we find here that Abraham has invested 13 years of his life in the son, Ismael, Ishmael, right? That's been the son, and he probably was thinking this is the son who God has been promising. And it's been 13 years. That son's been growing up. And by now, he's a young man. That's the only son he has. And so when God says Sarah's going to have a son, he knows the ramifications of that. The legal ramifications are any son that's born to Sarah, even a younger son, is going to supersede the son that's born to a servant woman. So any son that Sarah has is going to supersede Ishmael. All right? So he's going, whoa, wait a minute. How about we just do this with Ishmael, right? Because he's been thinking all along. That's been the arrangement. He thinks Ishmael's going to be the son that God promised all along. And God is saying, that's not my idea. That wasn't my plan. He's saying, your wife Sarah is going to have a son. And then he ends up saying in verse 19, somebody mind reading verse 19. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here we have God saying no. You ever go to God with your good plans? All right. God, I got this great plan. I think it's better than the one you've got. And God says no. All right. God has the right to say no. He's not a Santa Claus, all right? He doesn't have to give you what you want. You don't make your list out for God and say, that, you know, bring this for me because this is what I want. So basically, God is telling Abraham, the plans that you have, uh, thank you for the advice, thank you for the recommendation, I'm not going to go with that. I've got a different plan. God has different plans than us? Is that awkward? Are there times in our lives when we have to realize God has different plans for us and we've got to make a choice? Are we going to follow the plan that we think we've figured out or are we going to submit to God's plan, which we might not have the details on? Uh, that's perilous. I don't like that idea. You know, because me, I'm a planner. All right. So I sit back and I go, OK, my plan is to, you know, work this many years. I'm going to retire. And then I got this recipe for what I got for the rest of my life. And God might have a different plan. And I got to keep reminding myself of that every day as I'm looking at what's coming next month, what's coming next year, what's coming five years, 10 years down the road. As I'm trying to plan those things out, I got to realize God may have a different plan. God may say, that plan that you have and that plan that I have, those are going to diverge in a year. 
or those are going to diverge in five years or 10 years. Wherever it might be, there might be a divergence that I end up at a fork in the road and have to choose. Am I going to choose this plan I've already got worked out for myself? Or am I going to turn down the path that God has chosen for me? He's made it clear to me in that moment, that's the way I want you to go. And he doesn't tell me anything about where it's going to end up. Uh, I don't like that. <laughs> but that's where God puts us. Do you trust me? Every day I got to wake up and I got to say, yes, Lord, I trust you. Every day there's going to be some test that's going to come your way. And the test is, is going to be, do you trust me? And sometimes it's a small decision. Sometimes it's a big decision. But there's going to come a test at least once a day that says, do you trust me? And you have to make that choice consistently. And that conditions us to trust God more. Because when we do step out in faith and we make that small decision in trusting God and going the way that's different than our plan, then we get conditioned to trusting God. Because last time he came through for me, and the time before that he came through for me, and the time before that he didn't let me fall, and the time before that he supplied my need. And then as we go down that path of trusting God, it's a scary path to go down, but we find out he's been trustworthy all along. We can trust him in the next step as well. And that's what he's asking us to do, to trust in those next steps. So here's Abram, and he's like, oh, you know, i got this other plan. And God's saying, no, I've got a different plan is what God would say to him. And then he's saying, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. You shall call his name Isaac. The funny thing about his name being Isaac is, like I said, what was Abraham's response when he heard that they were going to have a child within a year? He laughed. <laughs> What's Sarah's response going to be in the next chapter when we find out that she gets wind of this plan? She laughs. What does Isaac mean? It means laughter. So God has already chosen the name for their son, and the name kind of pokes at them a little bit in their response to hearing that they're going to bear a son in a year because they're just too old. So they laugh. They're just too old. And God says, and by the way, you're going to name him Laughter. You're going to name him Isaac because of their response. I will establish my covenant with him. This is the second half of verse 19. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. We'll find as we go through the narrative in Genesis that you find that the same promise that's given to Abraham is transferred and given to his son Isaac. And then later on, that same the same wording is used again to transfer the promise or to continue the promise on through Jacob. And so we're going to find as we read through this that there's actually God saying, I'm going to bless you and you got the son coming and then the son comes and I'm going to bless you and you got this son coming and I'm going to bless you. And you got... So the promise is going to follow this family line. The narrative that we've been looking at in Genesis so far has been a global scale and then it narrows down to a particular family. And now we're following the family. We've seen the first person, that's Abraham, and now we're seeing the promise of the next one, and it's going to be Isaac. And that's what Paul would say is the son of promise. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that Ishmael is not the son of promise. Ishmael is the son of the flesh. So you've got the son of the flesh, and you've got the son of promise. Ishmael is the son of the flesh. Isaac is the son of promise. You end up seeing that Ishmael is called by Paul in Galatians chapter 4, the son of the slave woman, whereas Isaac is the son of the free woman. And also when it talks about Ishmael being the son of the flesh in another place, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 in verse 31 or 30 or something like that, where it says he's the son, Isaac's the son of promise and the son of the spirit. All right. So you got the son of the flesh versus the son of the spirit or the son of the promise. You got the son of the slave woman is Ishmael and you got the son of the free woman is Isaac. In Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through 31 is that is where you can find that. How about verse 20? Somebody mind reading verse 20. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also just as you have asked. I will cause him to multiply and become a great nation. Twelve princes will be among his descendants. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. In this verse, we find another play on words. We see that God hasn't forgotten Ishmael. It's not that God has completely cut off Ishmael. It's that God does have promises for Ishmael. 
And perhaps this is part of the reason why God instructed Hagar to come back. You know, God could have had Hagar out there in the wilderness. Remember that before she'd even given birth. And he finds her out there and he ends up having a discussion with Hagar. And he could have said, okay, you know what? You're running away from Abraham and Sarah. Just keep going. That's fine. My plan doesn't involve your kid anyway. He could have said that. But instead he gave those hard words to go back and to submit. Oh, how painful that was. And she's been living under that house for 13 years now. All right, so it's probably been a very awkward situation, but his plan was for her to go back. It could be part of the reason to go back is that this promise could be conveyed, that this promise that Ishmael hasn't been forgotten. In fact, Ishmael has been heard. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, God says to Abraham. He says, as, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. There's a play on words there. Ishmael, remember, it means God hears. All right, you remember that there was that promise that God had with Hagar out in the desert and that she calls God who has heard and God who has seen me in the place where they met, commemorated that. So it's been now 13 years. By the way, the descendants of Ishmael, they still practice circumcision. They circumcise on the 13th year. Any idea why? He's 13 years old right now, and by the end of this chapter, he gets circumcised. So Ishmael himself is getting circumcised by the end of the chapter at 13 years old. So the descendants of Ishmael actually practice circumcision to this day, but they do it when the child is 13. Kind of interesting. Verse 21, somebody mind reading that? But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, and Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. So here we find for the first time God actually gives himself a parameter or a particular date. All right? So all along there hasn't been a particular date when the promise was going to be fulfilled. Now he's obligating himself to fulfill the promise in a one-year period. All right, So Abraham has a choice. I either believe God or I don't. And in this situation, now it's either I believe God or I don't, and we'll find out in a year. All right, So maybe he's thinking to himself, I can hold on for one more year, and let's just see what happens. All right, Verses 22, 23, somebody want to read those? And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. Excellent. That selfsame day, what does that mean? That day. Yep, that same day. <laughs> yeah, it happened that same day. Does it sound like Abraham is obeying God promptly? Mm-hmm. It's the same day. Ooh, it's the same day, Yeah. And it's not just him getting circumcised, and it's not just him and his son getting circumcised. We're talking the community, the males in the community. are. <laughs> this is a big day, mm-hmm. all right? This started off with a visitation with God and the immediate follow-through and obedience and seeing that the whole community ends up undergoing a surgical procedure, all right? That's a big day. Somebody want to read it? Uh, how about 24? Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here we have a reiteration of his age, 99 years old. We know that his son was 13, and there's going to be people of all ranges, all different ages in here. For an adult to get circumcised, we've talked about children getting circumcised on the eighth day, and that's kind of God's recipe that we see here from this chapter. But it's not uncommon for an adult to get circumcised, and here you have a situation where that happens. When you do, there's pain and there's a recovery period. It's not like an out procedure where you're ready to go back to work the next day. All right, There's going to be some soreness and some pain. And so in this situation, he's exposing the camp to making themselves vulnerable. In a, in a sense, they have to end up trusting God again for their protection, not just for the provision and for the promises, but now for protection because they're going to be vulnerable. They're not going to be in a, in a place where they can fight. 
All right, if an enemy was to come and encroach upon them while all the males in the camp are not able to fight, ugh, that's kind of an awkward situation. So uh, that shows a, a little bit more trusting Abraham's yeah, trust in God. Too. Available <laughs> yeah, not so much, huh? And if you think about the instruments that were being used, they're flint. Flint, they're rocks. All right? These are not stainless steel, you know, scalpels. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a commitment going on here. I mean, at some point, yeah, it, I wonder if there's some people in the community that are like, okay, this is more than I signed up for. You know, <laughs> thanks for buying my freedom, but can I go back and be a slave for that other guy over there? Because I don't have to undergo <laughs> this procedure. You know, maybe it is. Maybe there's some commit. Maybe this says something about us. There's a commitment to following God. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve a, a surgical procedure. But there's still, nonetheless, a commitment that comes with following God. And some days are good and some days are bad. And for some of them, you know, in a physical sense, maybe this was a bad day because you're going to be in pain for a while. Sometimes in our spiritual lives, there's pain. You're going through places where there's pain and you're going through places where you're vulnerable and you're going through places where it costs you something. And you're like, I don't have to pay this if I just abandon the whole thing. But you realize as you grow in your commitment that that's not even an option. It's not even an option. You start to identify with Paul where he says that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And you begin to adopt that mentality. Or like those that were thrown into prison for preaching Christ. They rejoiced that they were able to suffer because of the message that they brought, that they were able to suffer shame for Jesus' name. I mean, that that's where you end up coming from. That Yeah, there's a cost, but you know what? It's so worth it. It's so worth it when you look at what Christ gave for us, what he extended to us. Was there pain involved in that? Absolutely there was pain involved in that. And he gives us an invitation to come and join the family and to be with him forever. That's a no-brainer. All right, there's no comparison. Moving on from there, how about verses 25, 26, and 27? Somebody mind reading those. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. So here we have the close of the chapter, and the words are just over and over and over again saying the same thing in those last couple of verses there, but basically saying, Abraham obeyed God. Abraham believed God and obeyed God, and everybody went through with it. They followed through. Here's one of the things, too, though. As we look at this passage, we realize, what is it talking about? It's talking about a circumcision in the flesh. It's talking about a circumcision in the flesh. Fast forward now to the time of Jesus. Fast forward now to the time of Paul. Fast forward now to the time of the earliest church fathers. All right. So in that first couple of decades, in and around the time of Jesus, you end up having what ends up being a dispute. If you could turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is a discussion having to do with, well, basically the New Testament perspective of circumcision. Acts chapter 15, somebody might reading verses <laughs> 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Excellent. To see the apostles and elders about this question. About what question? What's the question they're going to see the apostles and elders about? Right, whether the Gentiles need to be circumcised, because the Jews are already circumcised, so they're out of the discussion. So it's a matter of these Gentiles who convert to believing in Jesus as the Christ, 
And initially, the church, it's, it's a Jewish movement that ends up growing, okay? So now you've got Gentiles, and they're responding, and so the response is, wait a minute, what are we going to do about this? They're, they're uncircumcised, because by this time, circumcision carried with it the idea that if you're circumcised, you're one of God's children, all right? And if you're not circumcised, you're a heathen. And so you've got heathens converting to following Christ, the Messiah, and they're not circumcised, and so some of them are coming down and saying, hey, you know what? Great, but you got to be circumcised. And so there ends up being this argument. Paul and Barnabas, in what mine says, no small dissension and dispute. <laughs> no small dissension or dispute. They get into an argument with the guys over whether or not circumcision is something that should be required of them. Fast forward now, go down to verse 5. Somebody mind reading verse 5 just to continue the discussion here. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So you see people from the sect of the Pharisees are advocating the position. They have to be circumcised. They have to be circumcised. And if you look at verse 1, how important was it to them? It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're making it such an issue that they're saying, if, if these guys don't get circumcised, they're not saved. Whoa, that sounds like it's going to be a big fight. All right, moving on then, verse 10, Acts 15, verses 10 and 11. Somebody mind reading that? And this is Peter speaking, by the way. Therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. So Peter stands up, and in the congregation, or in, the, in this big meeting, in the assembly, he ends up saying, well, two things. Number one, why are we putting on them a yoke that we can't bear? What is the yoke? What's the yoke he's talking about? If you picture a yoke, first of all, just the, the visual illustration, you got these two oxen, and they're, they're wearing that big, heavy wooden beam that holds them together and holds them to the, you know, keeps them lashed to the, to the poles that pull the cart. All right, that's the yoke. I want you to picture that in your mind. So what is the yoke, though, supposed to symbolize? When he says, let's talk about the yoke that we're not able to bear, it's two things in particular. What is it? It's the law. It's the keeping of the law. And most specifically regarding this discussion, what's the other thing? Circumcision. Circumcision. So Peter is saying, why would we burden them with a yoke that we've never been able to accomplish or that we've never been able to successfully bear? The yoke being the keeping of the law and specifically circumcision. So the talk is about circumcision in particular, and it's about keeping the law more generally. Moving on from there, verses 24 through 29. Now, here's what happens. The assembly meets. They have this discussion. They end up coming to a conclusion, and they end up deciding, we need to send word to everybody because the way it came to us is word came back to us that they're teaching this over there and they're teaching this over there. And so words come back. Now we need to send word out there to address this issue. Here's how they address it. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So they're saying these are the things we decided are most important for them to teach. These are the necessary things. Number one, that you abstain from things offered to idols. Number two, from blood. Number three, from things strangled. And number four, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Is circumcision mentioned there? It's not even mentioned. 
they've had the discussion and they've decided what's most important and what's not. And circumcision, they've decided, doesn't make the cut. They've decided Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And that's the word they spread. That's the word they send out there. Why would they take something that God said in Genesis chapter 17 to Abraham, this is something you need to do forever, and say it's not important anymore? Well, there's two things. Number one, there's who was it addressed to in Genesis chapter 17? It's to who becomes the father of the Jews in a physical sense. And it's to who becomes the father of us all in a spiritual sense. And the salvation is through faith. He's the spiritual father of us all. It's a spiritual thing that we need to abide by. So if it's not a circumcision of the flesh that's important, if that's not what saves us, what is it that saves us? Turn to Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Somebody mind reading that? Oh, we're running out of time. Sorry. (laughs) For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul's position, as written out in the letter to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, it's not the circumcision of the flesh that makes any difference. Circumcision of the flesh doesn't make a difference. It's the circumcision of the heart. He's saying that it needs to be a circumcision of the heart. What is a circumcision of the flesh? It's a sign. It's not the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. What is it a sign of? It's a sign of what should be going on on the inside, right? It's a sign of an inside thing. So it's an outward indication of what's going on inwardly. Who's a sign for? Is it a sign for themselves? Hey, look, I'm circumcised. I must be one of God's people. Or is it a sign for God? Oh, they're circumcised. I better treat them different. Or is it a sign to others? Hey, those guys are different. I wonder what's different about them. All right. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It's a sign outwardly of something that's more internal as far as an identification. It's almost like baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of something that should be going on on the inside. Right? If circumcision in the flesh is an outward sign of what should be identifying in somebody on the inside, that this is a person who follows God, baptism is a similar in a sense that it's an outward indication to the community that that's somebody who follows God. You can't see the inside, though. You can only see the outside. Is there any way we can justify that that's actually the case? If you turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says this, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So you do see that there is a bit of a connection that Paul is making here, that he's basically saying it's not a circumcision of the flesh that's important. It's a circumcision of the heart. And this isn't a new idea. Paul's not coming up with this as a fresh metaphor, a circumcision of the heart. You actually find it in Deuteronomy 10, 16. You find it in Leviticus 26, 41. You find it in Jeremiah 4, 4 and in Jeremiah 9, 26. Jeremiah 4, 4, for example, says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your hearts. You men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil you are doing. Paul goes so far as to say in Galatians chapter 5, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And then he says in verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. (laughs) So he's saying the people that are saying that you must be circumcised to be saved, Paul's saying, you know what? 
I wish they'd go the whole way and just cut themselves off. He's making a play on words, but you can see it's powerful, and you're like, ooh, that sounds harsh, you know, and that's actually the case of what it's going. So I told you, and I promised you that I'd be giving you pictures, color pictures, right? So we're talking about, uh, you're probably thinking, I wish you would just show me pictures of puppies and kitties, all right? So here's the first picture I got for you, you know. You got a picture of puppies, and you got a color picture of some kitties, all right, <laughs> and you got another picture of some puppies and another picture of some kitties. And so you're probably saying, oh, I'm so glad he didn't show us, you know, color photos of circumcision. And you're probably saying, you know, something like uh, hallelujah. And you're raising your hands to God. All right, so there's your color photos. I know you're probably worried about it the whole time. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to have a good time and, and to be in your word and to find out, Lord, a little bit more about how things work. And we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to see this origin of circumcision in the Bible and how it was instituted uh, between you and Abraham, and it was intended to go for that time forward. And we see, Lord, that it's just a sign. It's a sign. It's an outward sign of an inward commitment to you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be a part of this group and the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing in this world and help us, Lord, to be led by you step by step. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't know if you realized it, but you said about five minutes ago that circumcision didn't make the cut. Oh, yeah. I didn't uh, even know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I did. I did not even know. Okay.